The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello, welcome to another special edition of What Catholics Believe. This is a monologue, you might say, but uh, to bring up something of uh, importance in the current controversies in the modern church, uh, a controversy that is raging so, so uh, flagrantly right now in the, in the modern church that uh, even some of the conservative Novus Ordo Catholics are beginning to question Francis and his papacy. Uh, just a week after Archbishop Carlo Maria Viganò published his letter accusing Francis of knowing about Theodore McCarrick, Cardinal McCarrick's depredation of children, just about a week later there was an article that appeared in Septimana News, okay, that's dated the 5th of September 2018. An article entitled, Viganò, A Blessing in Disguise for Francis. This article is by a well-credentialed sinologist. His name is Francesco Sisci. Um, and uh, he writes a very interesting slant on this revelation of Viganò, which I think is, is really worth paying some attention to right now, even now, uh, a couple of months later. Was largely glossed over, as I say, by the secular press, and yet I think uh, Francesco Sisci saw where the whole controversy was going. He says that uh, Archbishop Vigano actually did Francis a great favor. He he starts by saying, "Was there a coup in the Vatican? Perhaps not, but there is proof that for the first time ever, the Pope is a global leader." That's how he interprets the result of Vigano's letter, one week after it was issued, back in September, that Vigano actually highlighted the fact, by his accusation against Francis, that Francis really is a global leader. The, the uh, idea that Francis knew about a top cardinal a man whom Francis had promoted and actually take, taken in as a confidant in helping him choose bishops here for the United States of America, had been for a long time sexually abusing children, including seminarians. Uh, this actually catapulted Francis to stardom, in a sense, in the eyes of this Francesco Sisci. And with, with this accusation, the the person of Francis was given a special status. In fact, he goes on to say the press is on fire with this story, just one week after it was revealed. Yet Pope Francis said, and his Secretary of State, Cardinal Parolin, repeated that he, Francis, is serene and unperturbed. And this is one of those things that really troubled people around the world, that Francis actually did come across as being totally unperturbed by this story, this accusation, uh, that he was taking it so calmly as though it really didn't affect him. He wasn't responding to it. 
he insisted he wasn't going to say a word about it. How could he be seem so callous about this question of the sexual abuse of the young people and his knowledge of it and his enabling it? People were asking throughout the world. Well, this was the answer of Francesco Sisci, and I think it's a very good answer. He says, because Francis knows that the revolution he started in the church, if it is real, will break a little crockery. So there's nothing special here. See what Francesco Sisci was saying was, Francis knew that this revolution that he, Francis, was was engendering in the church were going to have there were there were going to be problems there were going to be side effects there were going to be collateral damage as he mentioned and so he just took it all in stride as necessary inevitable acceptable and so it really didn't trouble him <laughs> but this is what Sishi said what is really new and it is the first time in the history of the world is that news about the Holy See has gained instant global interest. TV and Internet around the world are reporting about this, quote, clash in the Holy See as if it were of interest to them. And so he's actually applauding this accusation because it focused attention on Francis in a way that nothing else really could that it, it's, in a sense, made Francis a kind of media superstar, that all attention was focused on Francis, of Catholics and non-Catholics, Christians and non-Christians alike. It brought everyone's attention on the Vatican and highlighted just how important it was that everybody was interested, fascinated, not by the question of whether Francis knew about his cardinals sexually abusing children, but that there was a bishop who was challenging Francis. This was the news. This is what everybody was interested about. An archbishop would stand up and challenge Francis. Then, see, she goes on, the fact that for the first time in history, the whole world is following Viganot's allegations proves the importance of the Pope and of his church. This should be reason enough to thank Vigano for his help to the Church and to the Pope in drawing attention to Francis, as it would put him on some kind of pedestal before the world. He says it underlined the importance of Francis, that everybody cared about this. See, she even goes on to say that in the same way that Vigano made Francis much more important, magnified the importance of Francis by his accusation, so Judas magnified the importance of Christ, according to Sishi. Sishi, and actually by his betrayal of Christ, fulfilled his mission, without which Christ couldn't die on the cross. So in this case, he's comparing Vigano to Judas and Francis to Christ by this accusation that Vigano had made about him. Now, um, with regard to the reality of all this, the truthfulness of it, this is what Sishi says. He says, 
Well, first of all, you have Vigano and his allegations, but Vigano had two oaths to be loyal to the Holy See, to Francis, and to maintain his secrecy. And Vigano broke both oaths. So why should we trust Vigano anyway in his accusation? This is what Sishi says. <laughs> he goes on to say that McCarrick was appointed and shielded by two other popes, John Paul II and Benedict XVI. Why then is Francis guilty when his predecessors were innocent? There is no clear answer. So again, he's pointing out the inconsistency in Vigano's, uh, let's say, what he considers attack on Francis, that Vigano did not impute guilt to Benedict or to John Paul II, who are really responsible for, make, for putting Cardinal McCarrick where he was and protecting him all these years. Why is Francis any less, any more guilty than those, Benedict and John Paul? Why doesn't Vigano raise that question, Sishi says? Well, actually, that's, that's a pretty good question, frankly. And then uh, Sishi goes on to say, there's a sense now that Francis is a saint. He's the victim of these accusations. And the fact that this has raised the estimation of Francis in the minds of people who see Francis more as the victim of, of Vigano. That is why he says Francis should actually thank Vigano. He says this is not about the sexual abuse of children, see she says. It isn't about an accusation made about a Novus Ordo Pontiff. It is about the clash of a bishop supported by some other clergy against a pope. That's what she says. That's the issue. It's a power play. It's a power struggle. That is why people throughout the world are so interested in this. Those far from the United States, those who never saw a cardinal world, those who never saw McCarrick or, uh, or Tobin or any of them, are fascinated because they see a power play going on in the church before the whole world. That's what this is really all about. And you know, it's, it's actually rather interesting that in this, this layman, Francesco Sisci, foresaw the letter of Cardinal Ouellette attacking, attacking Vigano a month later for what he simply dismissed as a power play on, on Vigano's part. Uh, I wonder if he wasn't uh, taking his cue from this uh, letter uh, that came out within the week after, after uh, Vigano's own accusation appeared. And then uh, Francesco Sisci asked the question, well, in this power struggle now, between this errant archbishop who breaks his oaths and rallies others to support him against the Pope, right? So there's this power play going on in the, in the church before the whole world. Who is winning, he says. He asks the question, who is winning this struggle? And again, again, he says, people who are not blind can see by themselves again, thanks to Vigano. They can see how weak Vigano's case is. They can see that Vigano has rallied these uh, these. Uh, the opposition to Francis, and they have no case. Everyone can see that, he says. He says that it's about two opposite views of the church. 
Francis's view, Vigano's view, the modern view, the anti-modern view, and it really comes down to, again to clericalism. Isn't that interesting? Within a week's time, this man is already identifying clericalism. It's amazing how many things are contained in this article that appeared on September 5th, 2018, later appear in the writings of cardinals and even Francis himself, as though they took a cue from this, to say, oh, it's about two opposite views of the church. One of them is clericalism. He says, uh, Pope Francis, in his book with Hernan Reyes Alcaide, Latino America, stressed the importance of following and listening to the people of the church and not to the clergy. So you see here, it's clericalism that is at issue here, isn't it? Francis writes about, he stresses the importance, not listening to the clergy, but listening to the people. The people are the church, not the haughty priests pretending to care about the people, but mainly attending to their own mundane interests. This is the essence of the Pope's recent accusations against clericalism. Okay, so they all got on the bandwagon of clericalism here. And uh, so this is the great struggle now in the church between the, the, the clergy who are involved in this uh, clericalist uh, in interest group within the church, and Francis, the hero, the white knight, who is going to deliver the people from the tyranny of the clergy. Okay, This is how this scenario is set up for us. And he goes on to say that uh, this is, the clergy confuse themselves with the church, which is really the body of the people. The clergy are servants of the church. They are not the church, stressed Francis. The sexual abuse scandal has brought this important issue to the fore, and this is extremely useful and important. Curious, isn't it, to say the sexual abuse scandal, scandal is really useful and beneficial for the church. It's important because it has brought to light the evil of clericalism. It's simply the manifestation of clericalism, the eruption of clericalism, so it's really been a, a, a source of great uh, gain for the church, really. And he sums up, therefore, the real issue here is politics, the power of the clergy and its limits, as opposed to the power of the people. Francis is leading the revolution against the clergy and in favor of the people. Um, again, you know, the bourgeoisie, the proletariat, the have, the have not, capital, labor, however you want to divide it here, it all gets back to the power structure, the power, power structure of the clergy, and the people, and Francis leading the revolution within the church. Okay? And he, he even goes on to, to draw a connection. He draws the connection between that and the accord between Francis and the Communist Chinese. As though this is really also a struggle, part of that struggle, between the people and the clergy. He ties it all in. Remember, this man is a sinologist. He's, he's a, uh, an expert, you might say, on, on China. He teaches in China, actually. And um, 
has a long history of China studies and background in, in Chinese politics and religion in China and so on. So he's speaking from that vantage point that he's tying the clericalist issue and problem in the church, which has provided this great, great blessing of, of manifesting the clericalist uh, bondage of the church, uh, and tying it in with the, the, uh, the agreement with the Communist Chinese. Curiously enough, Theodore McCarrick, the cardinal who kind of started this whole thing, uh, was going to China to deal with the Communist Chinese on behalf of Francis before all of this blew up. So he's involved in this too. So to draw the connection is not too far-fetched. But here's what uh, Francesco Sisci sees. He says that the eruption of the uh, sexual abuse scandal in the Novus Ordo Church is bringing the church into opposition with the secular authorities. In China, the church is entering in, into an accord with the political authorities. That is, of course, the Chinese Communist Party. And the church is working out an agreement, kind of a concordat, with the secular powers governing China. Whereas, because of the sexual abuse crisis in America, now the church is facing being at odds with the secular power in America. At the same time, she's making her peace. The Church of Francis is making peace with the secular authorities in China. The church is gearing up for war, in a sense. He doesn't use the word war, but opposition with the secular authorities in America because of the sexual abuse crisis, which is going to bring the secular authorities of the states and even the federal government, perhaps, in the United States of America to bear on the church. Curious about how we're, the Francis Church is making peace in China, and because of the sexual abuse crisis of the clericalism in America, now, the, now it is the American government that is going to be dealing harshly with the church under Francis. Um, anyway, just kind of a very, very strange way of looking at this, but you can see there's a certain perverse logic to it, right? As a matter of fact, if you go back and look at uh, St. Pius X's encyclical on Pescenti, you see exactly there what Francis is dealing with here. Pope Pius X made it very clear that according to modernists, the practice of religion must be subject to the secular authorities in a, in a society. The secular government has to have control over the expressions of religion to make sure that it is according to the common good and it fits the goods of society. St. Pius X forecast that as one of the maxims of modernists in his encyclical of 1907, Pascendi, condemning the errors of the modernists. We see this happening before our very eyes in Francis's church right now, putting the, the, the life of the church in the control of the secular authorities. In China, certainly, and as it's, as it's happening now, are going to be happening in the future, as Sishi predicts, more and more here in America, too. And Sishi ends by saying that Vigano's statement is just the beginning of a new set of frictions between the church and the secular powers.
And yes, after all, this is the history of the church, but its scale and scope now is totally different. For this, the church and the world must prepare. So now he's talking about this the yielding, putting the church now at war with the secular authorities because the secular authorities are going to have to step in now and regulate the church because of what the clericalists, the clergy, have done. Now, my dear people, I'm going to take a moment here to reiterate something that I've already said a number of times, uh, so much so that there might be some people being just a little bit irritated about it, but I cannot, cannot lose sight of this. I can't get it off my mind. The real issue here is, is not what, what uh, Francesco Sisci is pointing to. It's not what Francis is pointing to. It's not what Francis's cardinals and bishops are pointing to. It's not clericalism. The real issue here, really, the fundamental question here is not about homosexual, homosexuality in the clergy. Uh, the real issue here is how there came to be a homosexual cabal within the clergy in the first place. And the answer is to be found in Pope Pius X's encyclical on modernism. That was the gate through which all of these evils entered. All of these evils entered there through modernism. But still, I say that the real fundamental question facing us is not the question that Archbishop Vigano raises in his letter. Whether or not Francis really knew about the sordid history of Cardinal Theodore McCarrick is not the question. That's not the essential question. That is a peripheral question. There is a much more serious question that I find practically nobody talking about, that nobody's discussing. And that is, why does an archbishop say something that is an accusation about Francis's involvement even, even uh, indirectly in the sexual abuse of the seminarians of the Novus Ordo, why, why is it that, a car, that an archbishop reveals this and then has to run for his life? And that's exactly what has happened. Before our very eyes, we have an archbishop of the Novus Ordo who found it necessary to drop out of sight the very day that his accusation appeared and to hide for his life. He fears that he will be killed. That is a very serious problem. It should be. That really should be the essential question that everybody's talking about. Not even so much whether Francis really did know about what McCarrick was doing. There's a much more burning question, and that is, who is... Archbishop Vigano hiding from, who does he fear is going to kill him for even making this accusation? I mean, you know, and if you don't, you should, that um, the press went looking for the Monsignor who was working with Archbishop Vigano to ask him if Archbishop Vigano was telling the truth. And this man now, a priest in an older age working back in France, I think his name is Lanthome, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, was asked simply if uh, Archbishop Vigano was telling the truth, 
And this priest answered, Archbishop Vigano is truthful. He's telling the truth. That's all I'm going to say. But he said one more thing. He said, and if tomorrow you find my body parts encased in cement at the bottom of the river, don't be surprised if they say in the press that I was suicided, that I committed suicide. Now, those words were not said in jest. What is going on here? How is it possible that an archbishop had to flee for his life for having said something critical of Francis and accused him of having some involvement in the sexual abuse of the seminarians of the Novus Ordo? Is Vigano actually afraid of Francis, that Francis will try to have him killed? Is, is Vigano afraid that his fellow prelates in the Novus Ordo, uh, these bishops and cardinals, will actually try to have him assassinated for what he said? Is he afraid that the Lavender Mafia, the homosexual cabal within the Novus Ordo, is going to try to, to, to murder him? What is he afraid of? Is he, is he, is there something wrong with his thinking? Is he wrong in this? No one has appealed to him yet to come out of hiding with the assurance that he's in no danger. In the letters, that, the open statements that have been addressed to him, even by his own fellow bishops and cardinals, none of them have addressed the issue and stated, you're not in danger, stop imagining these things. No one has suggested that. It's as though it's just accepted he's in hiding and he's in fear of his life. And the reason why he fears for his life, it's like a non-issue. It's as though it has nothing to do with it. It has everything to do with it. And the answer to that question of why Archbishop Vigano fears that they will try to kill him for what he said, the answer to that question is the answer that really matters here. Why is he afraid of being killed for what he did? Who does that point at? What does it say about them? What does Vigano know that you and I don't know that makes him so afraid and makes us wonder why he is so afraid. This is really an answer that goes right to the heart of what the issue is in the Novus Ordo Church right now with Francis and his friends. And I just would wish that people would start focusing on that question and demand the answer. God bless you.